And good morning, church. My name is Brian. If you happen to be new with us, I'm one of the youth pastors on staff, and I am uh, thrilled to be with you this morning. If you're watching online, we welcome you as well. Um, And I hope that you all had a wonderful Christmas and that you are as excited about 2021 coming as I am, or maybe it's just that I'm excited that 2020 is coming to a close. Both are pretty accurate. 52 weeks ago today, I was standing up here and I was uh, preaching a sermon based on a book that I had read called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And my challenge to everyone as we headed into a new year was that we would slow our schedules down a little bit. And I think that we need to be careful what we ask for, because at least for some of us, 2020, uh, that perhaps maybe happened in March or April, and maybe for, for some of us even longer than that. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes it allows me to cope with my emotions of the various different things that I might be feeling to kind of get a good laugh in. And so um, as I was reflecting on some of the things that happened over 2020, here's a couple funny things that I kind of came across. Um, let's go to the first one. Some of us, we were prepared for, for 2020, and then this showed up, <laughs> kind of hit us right between the eyes. The next one, 2020 was a unique leap year. It had 29 days in February, 300 days in March, and five years in April. And this is a, a look at 25 years down the road. These are kids that are going to be studying a different unit of history for every week of the year 2020 has had. And the next one. Skipping school, this is what it looked like last year, but this year, all you had to do was mute a couple things. And what if you uh, woke up from a coma after six months and asked, how the year's going? The doctor would probably not know how to answer that question for us. Um, And then 2020, a very bad year, would not recommend one star out of five. And lastly, me looking outside to see which chapter of Revelation we're in today. Speaking of Revelation... That's where we're going to be. So if you want to turn, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in the very last chapter of the entire Bible, chapter 22. 22. And um, as, as, in all seriousness, I do know that 2020 has been a challenging year for many people. We, uh, we see our prayer requests on the ham here cards. Uh, we, we know that this has been a challenging year for so many. And uh, we wanted to let you know that we are praying for you and with you. And I also just want to say on behalf of our staff how thankful I am for the outpouring of love um, and um, the way that you have shown our staff just sincere thanks for the ways that we've tried to navigate um, the challenges of doing ministry and continuing to do worship, uh, whether it's virtually or uh, meeting here in person. So thank you for what you have shown us as a staff. As we have walked through... um, This entire year, um, if you happen to be brand new with us, we have been in a sermon series every 52 weeks, just about, um, covering 66 books of our Bible in something that we call the one story. We started January 5th, looking at the life of Moses, and we have seen how the shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament point to the substance of Jesus found in the New Testament. Today, we are going to conclude that entire sermon series with Revelation. Now, if you can remember in your grade school classes, um, maybe you were in an English class at one point and you learned about something called the plot diagram. The, it shows how stories can be mapped out in six stages, and the Bible is no different. 
And we saw how this unfolded as we walked through all of the different parts of the One Story Sermon series. And um, if you were like me, maybe you used something called Cliff Notes um, in the English. Um, sorry for all my English teachers that might be watching this over the years. Um, but uh, here's the Cliff Notes version of what we have covered so far this year. We began with the exposition. And this is an introduction to the story. It includes things like the main characters and setting and the time. The Old Testament begins in the Garden of Eden with the very first man and woman walking and talking in a very close relationship with their creator God. And then it, wasn't, it didn't take very long, but we, we begin next with the conflict. There, this is the primary problem that drives the plot or the story, often a main goal for the protagonist to achieve or to overcome. And it didn't take long for Adam and Eve to encounter the worst of all enemies, the prime antagonist. Some call him the adversary or the devil, the deceiver, Satan, who came in the form of a serpent. And Satan planted, planted seeds of doubt in the minds uh, of Adam and Eve about God's character and his provision and his plan for them. And as a result of a really bad decision to eat from the only tree that they were instructed by God not to eat from, sin entered the story in Genesis chapter 3 and plagued the rest of humanity for all time until Jesus showed up on the scene. The rising action of the story is all of the events that lead to the eventual climax, including character development, events that create suspense. And because of sin, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And God's people lost their way, literally and even spiritually, and looked to anything and everything from golden calves to kings to worship and rescue them. And ever since the initial sin by Adam and Eve, Humanity continues to face adversity and challenges because of our fallen nature. God did not intend to leave us in this fallen state, though. He had a plan to redeem us from our brokenness, and that's where we get to the climax of the story, which begins in the New Testament, which is the most exciting point of the entire story. It's the turning point for the plot, and we saw that when Jesus showed up on the scene, everything changed. Jesus left his place in heaven to come to be with God's broken people and, and, and sinful people. And that's what we just got done celebrating just a few days ago. Emmanuel, God with us. And not only did he come to be with us, but he came to die for us. And 33 years into Jesus' life, after three years of ministry, we learn about the resurrection and yet another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus cries out to the Father in anguish and ultimately submits to God's plan for redemption for all mankind as he lays down his life for us. And then there's the falling action. It's, it's played out in maybe every chapter of Jesus' resurrection. I wouldn't necessarily call it a falling action because actually the scene continues to grow. But for, for the sake of this, Jesus promised us the Holy Spirit to guide and direct the lives of those who profess him as the Lord and Savior until we get to the resolution of the entire story. It completes the story and it can oftentimes leave a reader with questions or answers or frustrations or satisfaction. The Bible ends the way that it started with a garden. This time it's a new garden when Jesus returns to redeem us all with a new heaven and a new earth. This one story of God, it's actually a love letter to us about just how much God loves his people. 
It is composed of laws and history, narrative poetry, wisdom given to us from the prophets. It transitions into four accounts of Jesus' life that we find and read about in the Gospels. It tells about the Holy Spirit that moved in God's people as the church began to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the word of Jesus began to share throughout the book of Acts, spread throughout the book of Acts. There were letters that were written to us by people like the Apostle Paul or Peter and James who tried to provide instruction for how we can live our lives in better accordance with God's ways. And then we end with a vision of what's to come as we await Christ's return. It's a dream or a revelation, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. In most Christian circles, the book of Revelation is either widely disregarded, um, it's either popular or completely avoided, and many people think that it's some kind of decoder of the end times. Others believe it's just a weird book that's been tacked on to the end of the Bible. And instead of thinking of any of those ways, I think that it's better perhaps for us to think of the book of Revelation as a book that was just as important for us today as it was to the original seven churches that, G, that, that uh, John sent this to. Speaking of, let's give just a little background on the book of Revelation. In verse 1 of chapter 1 of Revelation, it makes it very clear that the author of this book is John. Most scholars understand this to be John, the son of Zebedee, the author of the Gospel of John and three New Testament epistles, who wrote down this vision that he had in the mid-90s AD. Now take note that this was indeed one vision, or one revelation, not revelations, but one revelation that John was given from God while on the island of Patmos that you can see depicted here. Now, Patmos was only 25 miles in circumference. It was off the coast of Asia Minor, and it served as a place of banishment during the Roman period. The book of Revelation was written during a time where the Roman authorities were, were beginning to enforce emperor worship. And Christians who held that Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord faced increasing persecution, including being put to death, something that we call martyrdom today. And the Apostle John had been exiled to this island of Patmos for his activities as a Christian missionary, and believers were warned against coming opposition and oppression. And he wrote down this vision that he had, and he sent it out to seven different churches that were in Asia Minor, which is currently modern-day Turkey, for how we can stand firm in the trying days ahead. If you were to read through the 22 chapters of John's Revelation, you might see three prevailing themes throughout this book. One is that God is in control. Another, that Jesus will return soon. And lastly, that salvation is for all who receive it. And as we camp out in chapter 22 today, the last chapter of the entire Bible, in these final 16 verses, we're going to discover words of affirmation, encouragement, command, and warning found in seven invitations that we can apply to our lives as we aim to know God better and to love him more as we await Christ's return. And the first of those invitations is to obey the word of God. Obey the word of God. Now, this is a theme that is not only found in the book of Revelation. We see this unified theme as paramount to almost every book of the Bible. We see it in the Ten Commandments in Exodus, we see it in the words of the prophets, and we hear things like what Jesus says, let him who has ears listen. And James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter in James chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. We are to obey the word of God. So if obeying God's word is important, 
it should be no surprise to us that it would also appear as a theme in Revelation. And in chapter 21, right before where we are today, there's an angel that began talking to John. And and here in verse 6 of chapter 22, the angel continues talking. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what, what, what must soon take place. And he says, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps these words of the prophecy written in the scroll. These two verses are reminders for us for how we can live our lives as believers. We're to let scripture guide and shape our lives because they are trustworthy and true. We are to allow God's word to do its powerful work as it transforms us more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus through the working of God's Holy Spirit. In other words, as believers, we are to trust in God's word and that his truth is more beneficial than any of our best made plans for our own lives. After all, it is the source of the Lord who inspired every word that we have in the Bible. Now, I don't know about you, but I oftentimes find myself trying to make my own plans and, and to solve the own, my own problems before I turn to God's word. And if I were to just turn to God first, and allow him to be who I go to as my number one, then I feel like I would maybe even be able to avoid a lot of heartache and trouble. So I think that here we can learn and apply that we are to obey the word of God. The second invitation is to be true to the worship of God. Be true to the worship of God. Verses 8 and 9, it says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down and worshiped at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. John tells us that his re- initial reaction in seeing these incredible things of, and hearing about this from the angel was to fall down and worship. It was not to take to social media. He didn't call or text his bestie and be like, oh my gosh, you should, you should see this. There's an angel talking to me right now. It says that he fell down at the foot of the angel and he worshiped, which you would think would be a really great reaction, right? But the angel actually does a redirect. He says, hey, look, your worship shouldn't be to me. It should be true to God and to him alone. I think it's easy for us to allow our worship to lean into many things of this world. As a matter of fact, God created us to be creatures of worship. And that's why I believe that we saw the Israelites worshiping a golden calf while they were awaiting Moses' return with the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, or things like the bronze serpent that we heard Pastor David talk about last week in the book of Numbers. You and I might not worship angels or golden calves, but I do think that we tend to allow our hearts to wander and to worship things like status or fame or sports teams or school or relationships or athletics or comfort and pleasure or technology and electronics or hobbies like golf and gardening or climbing the corporate ladder or accumulating more and more money or padding our retirement accounts. While none of these things are bad in and of themselves, if we place them before God, then that's robbing God of his worship. Now, idolatry is exactly that. Anything or anyone that has become more important to us than God. So as we think about this, if an angel were to show up to you 
Would there be something in your life over this past week or this past month that the angel would call you out on and would quickly identify as false worship and redirect you to say you should be worshiping the one true God? The third invitation that we can see here is to proclaim the truth of God. He continues in verse 10 through 11. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Here we are invited to proclaim the truth of God. But how often do we do this? In a world where so many people are offended if we were to ask them what they believe, or if they believe in Jesus, or have heard about Jesus, I believe too often we might not even broach the subject. One of our youth leaders, um, this has always stuck with me. I might have even used this in a previous sermon. I can't remember, so forgive me if I did. But uh, Dave Hedges, he told us one time when he was teaching our youth ministry, he said that failing to share your faith with others is like being on the Titanic after it struck the iceberg. And instead of going around and throwing everybody a life jacket, you're going around and straightening pictures up on the wall. Speaking of the Titanic, since David Beatty preached last week, he used the Titanic in his sermon. I feel like I can do it too. Um, Aboard the ship that that tragically took the life of 1,496 people just over 100 years ago, there was a guy by the name of John Harper who was a pastor along with his six-year-old daughter. Now, he had the privilege of preaching at one of the greatest churches in America at that time, Moody Church in Chicago. Harper was known as an engaging preacher who had pastored two churches in Glasgow and in London. And Moody Church in Chicago was actually eagerly awaiting his arrival, not only to preach on that coming Sunday, but to also accept an invitation to be the next pastor of their church. But tragically, that did not happen. When the the Titanic hit the iceberg, Harper successfully led his daughter to a lifeboat. And being a widower, he may have been allowed to join her, but instead he forsook his own rescue, choosing to provide the masses with one last chance to know Christ. Harper ran person to person, passionately telling others about Jesus. As the water began to submerge the unsinkable ship, Harper was heard shouting, women, children, and the unsaved to the lifeboats. And up until the last moment on the ship, Harper pleaded with the people to give their lives to Jesus. John Harper did not seal up the words of the prophecy. The angel told John not to seal up the words of the prophecy. And I believe that people like John Harper did exactly that. How often, though, do we neglect to share the gospel with the lost world around us? While we might not all have the immediacy that John Harper had in his life to run from person to person, We should try to be the light of Christ to everyone that we encounter in everyday life. And what if, what if every day that you woke up, you prayed and you asked for God to give you just one person that you could share your faith with? One person every day that was unique, that would be perhaps 365 people a year that we would have an opportunity to share Christ with. Who is your one? Who is that one person that you can be on the lookout for? Maybe it can be a grocer. Maybe it can be somebody that you work alongside. Maybe it can be a family member. 
What if we were to not keep the word of the Lord sealed up in our own lives? Some people have questions about verse 11 in this passage where it said, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. They suggest that God does not want men or women to, to change in their ways, but that would actually be contrary to what the message of Revelation and actually the entire gospel uh, would say. The angel's words must be understood in the light of these repeated statements that we found in the book of Revelation that says, Behold, I am quickly, as well as statements like, For the time is at hand. Jesus Christ's coming is going to occur so quickly that we are not going to have time to change our ways. We are to live as if his return is coming now and to proclaim the truth of God to others. So we are to proclaim the truth of God. And the fourth invitation is to pursue the will of God. In verses 12 through 15, it says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense, or as the NIV says, reward, to repay each one of what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city of the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Here we see in these verses that Christ's return is going to be soon and that we are to be ready because we are repaid for how we live our lives in devotion to God. If we were to back up to the Old Testament book of Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 10, we are reminded where it says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the minds to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. As it relates to our own obedience, we must keep in mind that we will be judged for our deeds in, in this life. Too often, I believe that Christians have used theologies to justify regular sinning and then ask for forgiveness uh, as if there's no consequence. But here, we are reminded that on some level, there are consequences to the choices that we make. There are consequences that are just because God is just. And therefore, we should stop making excuses and instead aim to pursue God's will and His ways. One commentator mentions that the reward will be spiritual blessedness for the righteousness but judgment for those who are evil. It is the quality of a person's life that provides the ultimate indication of what that person really believes. And with that in mind, our pursuit should be of things that have eternal value. And I don't know about you, but I can oftentimes find myself doing things um, that, that often do, do not have any eternal value whatsoever. And while it's okay to have hobbies, I believe that our goals in life should be things that should point others and ourselves and our families closer to Christ. Within verse 14, we see that we are to wash our robes so that we might have a right to the tree of life. Washing our robes was a first century saying that, that, um, that mentioned that we are to persevere in our faithfulness to Christ and to refuse to compromise with the world, even if it means facing tribulation or consequences that might follow. There might be consequences to pursuing God's will. It might mean that you have to sever a friendship with somebody that is rubbing off in such a way that they are constantly pulling you down and causing you to doubt God's goodness and his faithfulness to you in your life. 
It might mean that you have to stop working at a place that is doing things that are unethical so that instead you can pursue God's will better. Oftentimes there might be consequences to following God's will and pursuing his ways, but God promises that doing so will, will give us a great reward. The fifth invitation that we see is to respond to the invitation of God. To respond to the invitation of God. In verses 16 and 17, he continues, I, Jesus, have sent an angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, the one who is, the, the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Within these verses, we see the great invitation of Revelation. It could be said that this is the great invitation of the entire Bible. And there are four parts to it. The first is the Holy Spirit invites us to come. The bride, the church of Jesus, also says, come. The one who hears is told to extend the invitation to come. And the one who is thirsty and is invited to come. In John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, he could come to me and drink. Take note of what Jesus doesn't say, say here. He doesn't say, hey, before you come, you need to clean up your ways. You're just a little bit too dirty. You're, you've sinned a little bit too much, and you first need to take care of all of that and then come. No, it simply says, come, and then Jesus does the heavy lifting. Charles Spurgeon and reflecting on both the content and the location of verse 17, he wisely once said in one of his sermons in London, to my mind, the seriousness of this invitation lies partly in the fact that it's placed at the very end of the Bible and placed there as the sum of the substance, the aim, and the objective of the whole Bible. It's like the point of the arrow, and all the rest of the Bible is like the shaft of the feathers of either side of it. We may say of the scriptures what John said of the gospel. These are written... All the books that are gathered together into one library called the Bible, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. So far as you are concerned, this blessed book has missed its purpose unless you have been led, led by it to come to Jesus Christ. It is all in vain that you have a Bible or that you read a Bible unless you really take the water of life of which it speaks. It is worse than vain, for it is not a savor of life unto you. It shall be a savor of death unto death. Therefore, it seems to me that this is a very solemn invitation because all of the books of the Bible do in effect cry to sinners, come to Jesus. Has there been a moment in your life where you have accepted that invitation to come to Jesus? If not, what a better time than today to come before the throne of God and to come to Jesus and to give your life to him. The sixth invitation that we see is to heed the warning of God. Heed the warning. In verses 18 to 19, it says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. 
Now, this is the conclusion of not only this prophetic vision of God given to us in the Revelation, but it's also the conclusion of the entire Bible. God issues a severe warning, not just to preachers and pastors or Sunday school teachers or ministry leaders. No, he gives a warning to everyone against adding to or taking away from this prophetic message. We are to heed the warning of God and not add or take away from what it said. Perhaps the best known example of somebody who took away from the words of God was the third ex-president, Thomas Jefferson, who spent much of his life grappling with and doubting religion. Using a razor and a pair of scissors to carefully cut out small squares of text, Jefferson formed his own version of the New Testament that most Christians would hardly even recognize. This Jefferson Bible focused only on Jesus, but none of his mystical works. It didn't include major scenes like the resurrection or ascension to heaven or miracles like turning water into wine or walking on water. Instead, Jefferson's Bible focused on Jesus as a man of morals, a teacher whose truths were expressed without the help of miracles or the supernatural power of God. What a tragedy to take away the deity of God. Jesus was fully God, but also fully human. And it seemed here that 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 was something that Jefferson just could not comprehend. While you and I might not physically cut out words of scripture, I believe that we are likely to still fall into the trap of disregarding things that God would have for us. We tend to adhere and apply the, the things that we are comfortable with, but when the Holy Spirit begins to convict us in just a little way, sometimes we're quick to turn away from those passages of Scripture. Pastor and author John MacArthur, he provides a pastoral and theological perspective to these verses. He says, No true believer would ever deliberately tamper with Scripture. Those who know and love God will treat His Word with the utmost respect. They will say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law and delight in your law. That does not mean that believers will never make errors in judgment or mistakenly interpret Scripture incorrectly or inadequately. The Lord's warning here is addressed to those who engage in deliberate falsification or misinterpretation of Scripture, those who Paul denounces as peddlers of the rod of God. So here we are to heed the warning of God and not add or take from it. And lastly, our final invitation is to pray for the coming of God. In verses 20 and 21, the final verses of our entire Bible, it says, He who testifies to these things say, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. While it might not be something that you want to happen today or tomorrow even, we are supposed to pray for Jesus to come soon and to be ready for when he does. One last time, the risen Lamb, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, He speaks, and His last words are brief but sure. Jesus promises that He is coming soon, and that our response should be to be ready. From the moment that sin entered history, God has been on a rescue mission to save sinners. Our God is a saving God pursuing lost souls for His glory. It should be no surprise at all that his words conclude with the final invitation for sinners to come to Jesus and to be saved. And like I said earlier, if you haven't done that, what a great day for that to take place. All you have to do is come before a holy God and say, Lord, 
I'm a sinner in need of saving. I realize that there is something in me that is not holy. There's, even if there's one sin, it's enough to separate us from the goodness of a holy God. And I turn away from those things and I give my life to you. As I was trying to think of a way to not only end today's sermon, but also to bookend our entire one-story sermon series, I, w- I was trying to think of the best way to put a conclusion to this whole entire thing and put a bow on our, our uh 52 weeks of great content we've been through. I was putting my youngest son, Jet, to bed one night, and uh, as we always do, uh, we we typically read a book together. And I was asking Jet to pick out the book, and um, he went to his bookshelf and picked out this, The Biggest Story, which is written by Kevin DeYoung. And as we were reading, uh, he said uh, that we were actually at chapter 10, which is the final chapter of of the entire book. And as we read through it, I was like, that's it, God. That's what I need. That's what I need to conclude this entire sermon series that we've been in through the one story. And rather than having me read it, why not just have Kevin DeYoung read it? For all the children and all the adults alike, let's enjoy this together. It's the biggest story. It's a familiar story to some of us. It's a true story for all of us. But we haven't seen the end of the story, not yet. We live in the beginning of the end of the story that we are still in the middle of. We know it's not the end because we haven't made it back to the garden. We get glimpses of the garden here and there, in our hearts, in our families, in the church. But anyone who loves this story longs to see the one who is the center of the story. The snake crusher is coming back again to wipe away all the bad guys and wipe away every tear. He's coming to make a new beginning and to finish what he started. He's coming to give us the home we once had and might have forgotten that we lost. So keep waiting for him. Keep believing in him. Keep trusting that the story isn't over yet. God's promises never fail and the promised one never disappoints. One day we will see him. One day we will be with him. One day there will be nothing but the best days, day after day after day after day. And forever and ever it will be a wonderful time to be God's children in God's wonderful world. Indeed it is a wonderful time to be God's child in God's wonderful world. But I can't wait for the day where Jesus will return to redeem all of humanity for the finale. And I have seven quick questions that you can ask yourselves by way of application as we conclude our time together. One, am I regularly obeying the word of God? Am I listening to what he says and doing what he says in my daily life? Is my worship directed to God or things of this world? Number three, do I proclaim the truth of God? Do I share what I have, the good news of Jesus Christ, with others who need to hear it? Number four, do I pursue the will of God? Am I actively trying to live out what he says and how I should live my life? Number five, have I responded to the invitation of God to follow him? Do I heed or regard the warnings of God? And lastly, do I pray for the coming of Christ? Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for a chance to learn so much about you and your ways throughout this entire sermon series. And we thank you for your word to us 
that were given to us through the angel, through Jesus, um, to John, who shared it with us, and how we can um, try to love you better as, and know you more as we uh, await for Jesus' return. Father, we thank you that you invite us to come before your throne, that you have given us your son Jesus to redeem us. And we thank you for the love and the mercy that is new every day. Lord, would you allow your people to live these things out as we begin a new year? Would you allow us to see that this would be a year of fruit, a year of growth, a year of much discipleship, a year of love for you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.